All right, we are um, on our second class of six on the essentials of the Christian faith. And um, today we want to look at that second pillar, we could say, of of uh, Christianity. We want to, to look at Christianity from a biblical perspective. So let me uh, begin just by asking you a question. What is What do you think the most pivotal event was in the last century? Worldwide, globally. 1948. Anything else? Something pivotal that happened that maybe you're going to see in every history book. World War II. Yeah, World War II. How about the last millennium? The last. Thousand years. That was a little bit earlier than that, but <laughs> but you're getting that. What I'm uh, I'm getting at. What's that? Revolution. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you got the Reformation that took place in the 1500s, and then in all of human history, Jonathan jumped the gun here a little bit, but uh, the crucifixion, the two most pivotal events. I think in all of human history are the crucifixion and the resurrection. And this morning we want to look at the first of those, the crucifixion. Next week we'll look at the resurrection. We want to discover the true meaning of Christianity. We can talk all we want about Christianity, but but really we need to understand it from what God says. We need to look at the person that Christianity is about because everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people say that they're Christians. A lot of people talk as if they know what, Christianity is, but but really, if we want to know it, we need to look at uh, the life and the teachings and the claims of Christ. So, in order to do this, we we said that it's best to look at the original sources, and so we we've decided to use for this class the Gospel of Mark. We're using Mark because it's the first gospel written. It's short and concise. It's something that we can cover, or at least hit the highlights in in six week class. And also, it's a gospel of action. One of the key words in the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately. So, anybody want to remind us what gospel means? The good news. What kind of good news? Hey, I had some good news today. <laughs> what, what kind of good news? The good news about Jesus Christ, right? That He is the Son of God. That's what we looked at last week. That was the first pillar or the first leg to the stool, so to speak, that, that holds up the the doctrine of Christianity or the the truth about Christianity. So let's talk about what we looked at last week. Jesus, remember, and Mark made some divine claims, and and he he wanted to show that he had authority. So what kind of things did he show that he had authority over? Mark tries to pull them out that he has authority over what? What are some of those things? What was it? Nature. Okay, remember he said that when the seas and the the, he says, peace be still and, and everything's calm. What was it? Okay, the ability to forgive sins. Um, Mark chapter 2, remember he says uh, to, the, to the paralytic who comes down, who's lowered down through the roof, he says, your sins are forgiven. And remember the Pharisees are like, well, forgive sins, only God can do that. He's showing he has power to forgive sins. In order to show that, what was that? Another one? Sickness, right. So then in order to show that, that he could forgive sin. Here's an outward or an, here's a visible sign that I have the power as the Messiah. I can I can I have power over sickness. What else? Demons, right? Over evil spirits in chapter 1, they recognize we know who you are, the holy one of God. 
and he drives out the spirit and the evil spirit in, in chapter 1. What about the daughter of Jairus? Death. Death. Okay, so he goes in there and says, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. Right? And then, um, and then he also has authority. The last one was, uh, well, we forgot to mention the teacher, that he has the power to teach. Remember all the, 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 um, the synagogue officials and things, when they would speak, they would say, well, this is what this person said, and here's this authority. You know, when pastors speak, they speak on the authority of someone else. And Jesus says, when he speaks, he speaks on the basis of his own authority, right? The, the scriptures say, but I say to you, right? He says several times in, in Matthew's gospel. So he has a power to teach and then, or the authority um, as a teacher and then authority over people. Remember, he calls Simon and Andrew and others and they come and follow him. So these three pillars, first, the deity of Christ. That's what we saw last week. Jesus is the Son of God. Second, Jesus the crucified. He is the crucified one. And then the third one we'll look at next week. Jesus is resurrected. Resurrected. He is the living one. So uh, your assignment for last time was to read through Mark chapters 1 through 5. Any questions on any of that? All right. Well, let's... Uh, Focus our attention this morning on Christ and His crucifixion. You can turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Because the death of Christ on the cross cross changed history forever. But before we look at this account here in Mark's Gospel, let's just define a few terms. First, sin. Uh, we looked at sin uh, last time. What, what was uh, How did we define sin? Okay, so it's an attitude of sin or an attitude of rebellion that is in either thought, word, or action that is opposed to God's law, right? So um, it's a failure to conform to what God has told us that we should do. So if He tells us that we should do something and we don't do it, that's sin. If He tells us not to do something and we do it, then that is sin as well. And so sin is a deep personal violation against God's holiness. He is our rightful Creator, our rightful King. He, he, he owns us in that way. And since that we are saved, then He doubly owns us. And so when we do things our own way, we sin against God rather than doing what He wants. And so because of our sin, we stand in judgment before God and we need His pardon. We need His forgiveness. Now, we want to define... Um, Crucifixion, because that's going to be something that we talk about today. Someone wants to try to define crucifixion, what was, cru- or maybe explain what it was. Okay. Right. Okay. So the Romans were good at humiliation tactics, and particularly at at uh, making death extremely humiliating, making someone look. Foolish. So it was, it was first about torture and death, and then secondly about human. So they wanted to torture the person. Um, they would flog them first, and they would nail them, as Eric said, to a T-shaped beam. Um, it was a brutal and slow and agonizing death because death would come by suffocation, and it would happen usually over the course of a couple of days, where the the, the victim would effectively or potentially the condemned, we could say, because they they may not be a victim. Um, but the condemned person is 
is unable to push themselves up to, to, to gain another breath. And so that's why they would come by when, it, when the death would, would be too prolonged. They would come by and break their legs. And so it was torture for them. It was a grueling way to die. But it was also humiliating because you were basically put up in front of everybody to see, um, kind of along with how Haman, the, the gallows used to work, right? They were usually set up on a pretty high place. Where, where everybody could see and, and it would be an object of shame to, to see that person and um, to think about their crimes. And so it was contemptible. It was without honor. It was reserved for the lowest members of society. This word crucifixion would not have been used in the, the upper crust type of um, uh, in the place, place of society. That it just wasn't used. It was, it was primarily for the lowest members. And so to die by crucifixion was really... Uh, a form of a curse. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So crucifixion was a form of torture and is a form of humiliation. Now, two questions that naturally follow. Um, and these are not the two problems, okay? So don't start writing here. We'll come back to the two problems here in a minute. These are just two questions that might follow when we consider what's, what's going on here. First, if I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness, then how can I be forgiven? How can I be forgiven? That's the first question. The second question is, if Jesus is divine and righteous, then why was He crucified? If crucifixion was meant for sinners, the, the lowest dregs of society, then why was Jesus crucified? How can I be forgiven and why was Jesus crucified? And I think both of these questions are answered when we look at the meaning behind the crucifixion. So let's begin reading here uh, in verse 33. What do we learn first about Christ's death in verse 33? Someone read that for us. Okay, so what's the first thing that Mark, uh, he, he might just be writing chronologically here, but, but in terms of, of how he explains it, what does he want us to know? What does the Holy Spirit want us to know about Christ's crucifixion? Okay, so what's the significance of that? Bill? Okay. So we have here from the sixth hour to the ninth hour um, where darkness fell over the whole land. The sixth hour is noon and the ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So the time when you expect the sun to be at its brightest, the whole land became dark. And I think this was in some cases a judgment on all the people that they had killed God's son, right? They had killed the Messiah. But in another sense, it was also, as Bill's saying, it, it was a judgment on on Christ, wasn't it? That it was God bringing down His judgment on His Son for our sins. This supernatural darkness uh, should point us back to times in the Old Testament when we had periods of darkness. Can you think of one where God's judgment came on some people? What was it? Okay, in Joshua. Okay, sun stood still. What else? Something big? The plague, right? You had the plague, the tenth 
not the tenth plague, but was it the eighth or ninth plague? Um, have to get our our young people back up here and answer the question for us. Um, but 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 one of those plagues there, darkness fell on the whole land. This was a form of of judgment that God was bringing upon Egypt, and yet in Israel they had light. And so this this darkness was symbolic of what God was doing to His Son, that He was bringing judgment on Him for the sin of the world. So why is God's judgment falling on the innocent Son of God? If Jesus was perfect, if Jesus was completely innocent, why was God's judgment falling on Him? Well, let's look at verses 34 to 37. Well, the first one here is Jesus, our satisfaction. That's your blank there. Jesus, our satisfaction. So He satisfied God's wrath. We talk about it in terms of propitiation, that God's wrath should have rightly fallen on us, but Christ took our place, and so He became our satisfaction or the satisfaction of God's wrath. Secondly, Jesus, our substitute. Someone read verses 34 to 37. All right. So here we have Jesus fulfilling his purpose on the earth, right? He says, "I came to give life." And so he he comes to give life through his death that he took upon himself the punishment, the burden of our sin that that we should have taken. Jesus being without sin took upon himself the penalty that we deserve. He became our substitute. That's why we say Jesus our substitute here. And this is evidenced by the cry when he says here in um, verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's expressing the profound horror of the separation that he had never experienced from his Father. He had eternally, Christ had eternally perfect communion with his Father, and now it's temporarily severed as he dies for sinners. And so in that time, He bore both the guilt of our sin and the punishment for our sin, and He did it in our place. And so, in order to help understand um, understand the concept of Christ's substitutionary death, consider this illustration. Imagine this dark, dark colored book here represents your life story. And in your life story, it is made up of all all the records of your sins that you have committed in your entire life. Now, certainly there are some good things in here, but the sins have to be paid for. And so, um, you need something to to happen. Now, suppose this left hand right here represents you, and the ceiling represents God. So, between you and God is the record of your debts. Everything that you have done in this lifetime and that you will do stands between you and God in order to have a right relationship with you. You are separated from God because of your sin. And so while the Bible says that God is love, part of His love is expressed in His justice. That He can't just 
take this away arbitrarily and say, you're okay, you're on my side. I'm going to show you love. Instead, he has to punish your sin. That's how his love is expressed in his justice. And so we have two problems, and here are the two problems from the earlier page. First, we have many sins. And second, God will punish our sins. So first, we have many sins. Okay, Some of our books are bigger than other people's, right? We have many sins. And second, God's going to punish our sins. Those are our two problems. So here we are. We stand guilty, condemned before the holy God. Now, suppose that my right hand represents Jesus and the ceiling still represents God. And between Jesus and God is the book of His, the record of, of all that He's done in His life. Okay, and so, so between Jesus and God is nothing but perfect righteousness. And so what happened on the cross is though, though Jesus was without sin, He always perfectly obeyed His Father. God took the sins of everyone and He transferred them to Jesus, didn't He? So that between Jesus and God was the record of everyone's sin. So that you could say that on the cross, Christ bore the millions and billions of people who had sinned and who will sin. He bore all those for their sake. And so all of God's wrath, you know, you, you think of how, how much wrath would God have on the worst of sinners, right? You can think through history, maybe Hitler, you know, some of these people who just were terrible sinners, how much wrath will come on them? And, and, and multiply that by a million. And that's how much wrath came upon our Savior at the cross. God executed His own Son in order that we could be righteous before God so that the penalty that was on us has been transferred over to Christ so that we no longer have a penalty between us and God. And what's more... We now get the record of Jesus' righteousness, don't we? So that when God looks at us, He sees nothing but Jesus' life. That's justification. That's the substitutionary atonement that we have so that we both have our sins paid for and we receive the righteousness of Christ. And so that in salvation, all who believe will receive eternal life. They will have that transfer take taken place this is forgiveness this is what it means to to have a relationship with god and so this is jesus our substitute he takes our place doesn't he all right any questions on on those first two comments Mm-hmm. He was asking God why, and Psalm 21, or excuse me, Psalm 22, yeah. verse 1, gives us the answer. Because thou art holy. You know, you said that right there anyway, so. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that I don't know where it's supposed to be, if I heard it or not, but when Jesus was dying for our sins, He and he alone had the ability to dismiss his spirit. And when, when they gave him that gall to drink or the last drop, 
that, we can't do anything for our salvation. Like you said, it's been mm-hmm. done and done. Right. Yeah, Jesus would say while he was on the earth, no one will take my life for me, but I willingly lay it down. So, um, in a sense, yes, he was killed, but there's another sense in which he, he gave his life for us. He he didn't have somebody take it from him. He basically followed God's design that, that God said in you know, Isaiah chapter 53 that he, the Lord was pleased to crush him um, as part of God's plan that Jesus would die. All right, thirdly, Jesus our Savior. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. I'm sorry, did I skip one? I'm sorry. It should be Jesus our sacrifice. I just gave you the fourth one. So, And you're going to have to have an ugly handout now. It's all scribbled out. Jesus our sacrifice and then Jesus our Savior. So let's look at Jesus our sacrifice. While we're here in chapter 15, would someone read verses 38 and 39? The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus our sacrifice. The temple was comprised of two rooms, a large outer room followed by a small inner room called the Holy of Holies. The inner room was the symbolic place where God would come and dwell with His people in the Old Testament. And you you remember that nothing impure could ever enter into the most holy place. Nothing impure. And in order to ensure that, you had between those two rooms this huge temple curtain. It was a... Um, it was a, a curtain that I think was about 10 inches thick and it reflected the separation that there had to be between the holy God and unholy people. And so no one could enter that place except for who in the Old Testament? Who could have? Just a high priest. And how many times a year? One time a year on the Day of Atonement. He would take in the sacrifice and he would basically offer this sacrifice and, and God would meet him there at the mercy seat. And so so there is this separation between God and man. And yet when Christ died, that temple curtain was rent. It was torn in two to, to symbolize again, just like the darkness symbolized something. This symbolized that the blood of Jesus' sacrifice was enough to, to, to uh, pave the way between us and God so that now we can go directly to God through God the Son. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, one must also say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But of course, the animal's blood didn't really atone for the sins. That's what Hebrews says, that, that the blood of bulls and goats don't, does not atone for sin. Uh, it had to be the blood of a sinless Savior. And so when this curtain was torn at Christ's death, it symbolized the new access that we have to God through Christ that these regular sacrifices that the Old Testament believers had to bring were no longer needed. So now Christ is our sacrifice. He has taken our sins. And listen to this, past, present, and future. He's taken them all. And He's borne them on Himself, on the tree, um, made for us a permanent atonement. And has opened the way to God. And the significance here is that Christ's death is what enables us to have a relationship with God and to be in fellowship with God. Listen to Hebrews 10:19-22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, okay, just think about that temple just at that time and how we now are able to enter that place where God dwells. 
we now have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the, through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, there Hebrews describes Jesus as the veil. He's like the veil and the sacrifice and the priest. He's all those things. And other places, He's the temple. Um, but, but Jesus is the, the veil in the sense that He had to be torn in order for us to make to, to have our, may, our way made to God so that we could draw near to God. Jesus, our sacrifice. And then finally, Jesus, our Savior. Now we can turn to chapter 10. Jesus, our Savior. We want to consider this final one regarding Christ's crucifixion. And that is that He was our ransom. Someone read verse 45. Now, you would expect that a king, if he were to come down from his throne and kind of live among the commoners, that he would come to be served by the people, but that's not what Jesus did. When he came as the king of the universal throne, he came down to live with us commoners, us sinners, us who were his enemies. And instead of being served, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So what is a ransom? A payment. Okay, a payment to free someone from bondage. So, obviously, in Roman times, slaves could be ransomed, or a government could purchase the freedom of a captured soldier by paying a ransom. A slave or a POW did not have the ability to free themselves. They needed to be ransomed by someone else who had that kind of ability. Someone else had to set them free. And so, the Bible refers to all people that are apart from Christ as slaves to sin. That we are in bondage. We are held captive to sin before a just God who hates and who will punish sin. And the irony is that the world will tell us the exact opposite, won't they? That, that when we repent and believe in Jesus and we start to follow Jesus, that that's actually a form of slavery. You know, they say you're not able to do the things that we're able to do. And what, and what the Scriptures teach us and what we know from experience is that it's not a form of slavery. It's actually the greatest form of freedom that we can have. To be freed from the slavery to sin and be freed to serve God like we could not before because we were opposed to God and God was opposed to us. Bill? Oh, I just wanted to comment on that, uh, what the world thinks. Yeah. If we truly follow Jesus, we don't want to do what the world does. Yeah. Yeah. We, we no longer will indulge in the sinful behavior that we once did. We now are being freed from it. Another thought or question? Yeah, I don't know. Bill? <laughs> yeah. I mean... Sunday morning, 
that was one of my favorite pastimes was get to the cafeteria and sit down and gamble. Mm -hmm. And I got saved, and I watched it, and then I started coming under conviction and equipped. And yeah. I'm not going into other things, but I think you all understand. Yeah. Well, John says that there there are these three things that are opposed to God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So, so I mean, we there's lots of ways we can or try to summarize what worldliness is, but I think that's probably the most basic way that we could do that. Greg? I'm sure if you went on the Internet, you could find a lot of uh, lists, but... Um, they might may not they might not help you. Um, yeah, that, that's probably not the place I would go for a list. But um, um, I have a a book that I have found to be helpful on worldliness, and I'd be happy to to lend it to you. It's really short. It's um, it it takes maybe three or four hours to read, probably. Um, if, you, if you're looking at it carefully, it might take a little bit longer, but but maybe that would be helpful. And, and the the guy who writes it is trying to to pull out scripture to see what the Bible has to say about worldliness, and uh, try to help us to think about practical ways in which we can avoid that kind of thing. But I mean, it, it seems like at the end of John's epistle, First John, he says, um, "and keep us from and keep us from idols." I think is the very last thing he says. And and um you know we have to ask ourselves let's let's turn there I think we're done looking here at the other text so let's turn to first john throughout the book book he's been saying you know here's how you can know that you're a christian you know that that you know that Christ is the son of god that you believe that Christ came in the flesh also that you love uh you love your neighbor and that you're you're basically staying away from sin that you're not being worldly and yet, at the end of his epistle, the very last verse in First John, he says, "Little children, guard yourself from idols." And we would expect him to say something like, "And little children, guard yourself against worldliness," because that's what I've been talking about this whole letter. But instead, he says, "Guard yourself from idols." And I think, you know, Ken Brown pointed this out to me the first time that I, um, the first time I heard it was from him, and I th- think it makes so much sense that I think what he's saying is, worldliness is very closely linked to idolatry. That is anything that that's why a list actually wouldn't help you. You know, we could say, okay, here's all the things that that are opposed to God. But really, what what is opposed to God? What is worldliness? Is um, it's it's fallen values expressed in culture. That's worldliness. And so we become worldly, or we act worldly, when we take things that should not be in first place in our life. And we move God out of that place and we put those things in His place. So that could be anything, whether it's evil or good, right? We could we could actually put our own family, right? That's a good thing to have family. We, uh, uh, money. Money's not inherently evil, but we can take money and exalt it to a place of first place over God, and now it becomes worldly for us to to uh, to engage in that sort of thing. So we we have to guard ourselves against idols. That's what. John's calling about. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it can be a form of boasting. That's why the boastful pride of life is one of the things that are listed there. Uh, 1 John 2. 
1 John 2:15. So here's here's the command that I think maybe is the underlying thought that we're having here. Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. So what does that mean? What what does it mean to be worldly? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not him in him. That's a pretty stark statement. We don't want to be worldly. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, yeah, something to, to think about, to meditate on. Um, unfortunately, there's no succinct list. Um, God doesn't work that way. You know, if you just follow these these six things, then you're going to be okay with me. What He demands and he expects is a relationship. You know, it's kind of like in a marriage relationship. If I went to my wife and said, you know, Jennifer, just give me a list of everything that's going to make me happy, or make you happy, make me happy. That's, I've done that one before. That doesn't work. Um, so give me a list of things that you want from me and things that you don't want, and I'll make sure I don't do any of those things and I do the things that you want me to do. And if I did all those things, would I have a good relationship with her? Not necessarily, right? Because... Um, what it takes is getting to know her personally. Communication, um, you know, starting to to uh, to talk and, and to, to work through different things. And, and that's what it, it takes with God, too. I mean, He expects a relationship with us so that we're trying to find out who He is so that we can, as theology really is, just thinking God's thoughts after Him. You know, we, we learn from what He wants us to know, and we start, okay, this is what God wants. And the more you get to know your spouse, the more you get to know God, the more you can start finishing finishing each other's sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> sandwiches. See? So, um, but but that's that's the same thing that works with God. You know, I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to... Um, denigrate the relationship that we have with God like it's just a relationship with the marriage. But often, um, God uses that very illustration to describe the relationship we have with God. I think of, um, what is it, Hosea? Is it Hosea? No. Haggai, right? Haggai's the one that married the, the prostitute. Hosea. Okay, good. We need these kids back up here again to help me with my Bible trivia. Terrible. Uh, so, Hosea, um, married the prostitute and God's saying, this is what it's like for me to have a relationship with Israel. You know, you keep going back to your foreign, your false gods and you need to recognize how much I love you and how much I'm committed to you and so on. And, of course, Jesus does the same thing when we are described as the bride of, of Christ, right? The church is the bride of Christ. So there, this marriage relationship is really just a picture of something bigger. So, So in one sense, I don't want to denigrate the relationship we have with God and just say, oh, it's like a you know, an infatuation that we would have with a, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not what it is. Um, it's about a commitment. It's about a relationship. It's about communication. And um, so discovering what worldliness is is much bigger answer than than we can actually address in just, you know, a few words or a few points on a list. All right, long long answer, short question. Sorry about that. All right, so... Mark 10:45 we're reminded that God has purchased our freedom through the death of his son Christ came to serve us not to be served and to give his life as a ransom so on the cross he paid the debt that we were wholly incapable of paying right the only way that we can pay for this debt is through spending an eternity in hell and what Jesus did and says here I'll take that place I'll go to hell for you essentially right 
or effectively. And this is the great hope and the joy of the Christian is that in Christ's death, Jesus pays the price that buys us to back to God. And so that we can say with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And notice, um, we're, we're already gone from Mark 10.45, but, but notice that he gave his life as a ransom, that, that this was a free gift. He wasn't constrained or forced onto the cross unwillingly. This is what Bill was mentioning earlier, that he chose to lay down his life for us, and he did it according to God's plan and desire. Any questions before we finish with a summary? Look at Galatians 6.14. It's on your handout. You're welcome to look in your Bible if you'd like, but but there it is for you. Um, Paul writes this, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We asked earlier, why was Jesus crucified? And why do Christians glory in the cross? Why do we boast in the cross? We glory in the cross because it is on the cross that the unmerited love and unwavering justice of God is so clearly displayed. So where God's love and His justice meet at the cross, I'm going to pour out my wrath. I need to go the other way here. I need to pour out my wrath on sin. And He does that. That's, that's showing His justice. But He's also showing His love in that, that He gave us a way to escape from the penalty that we deserved. So it's on the cross that the guilt and punishment of our sin is dealt with, dealt with, not by us, but by Christ, because the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is our substitute, satisfaction. He's our sacrifice. He's our Savior. He's ransomed us from slavery to sin and brought us into communion with God, torn the, the temple curtain in two so that we could have access directly to God. And yet this ransom that we all desperately need is not just given to anyone, is it? It's available for everyone who believes, but it, but it only is received by those who repent of their sin. So we're not we're not teaching here. We don't think that the Bible teaches universalism, which is that everyone eventually will make their way to God. You know, like it's kind of like God's at the top of a mountain, and all the roads lead to God. It doesn't matter how you get there, whether you go through Buddhism or Catholicism, they all lead to God. We're not saying that. The scriptures are clearly against that. There's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ. However, um, this this atonement is available for all who will believe. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will or shall be saved, right? So anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it's for only for those who repent and believe. And when we do that, we're basically saying, God, I, I cannot bear my sin alone. I need a substitute. And um, and so, in my place, God, take the sacrifice of Christ and apply it to my sin. We can't pay for our sin ourselves. We have to trust in Christ and in His work. So, the first pillar, okay, think about it like three, three legs on a stool. The first one is um, Christ is the Son of God, deity. Okay, Christ is the Son of God. The second leg is is Christ is crucified. And the third leg that we're going to look at next week is Christ is resurrected. 
We need to understand all three of those things if we want to understand what Christianity really is. And I think a person who doesn't understand those three things does not understand biblical Christianity. A lot of people call themselves Christians, and there are a lot of ideas out there, but, but we want to go to the text of Scripture and see that firsthand. So that's what we're doing in this class. Next week, we're going to look at Christ the resurrected, but what I would like you to do between now and then um, just in an effort to be able to read through this entire gospel during this class, would you read through chapters 6 through 10? And then if you have any questions, just write them down or maybe make a note in the margin of your Bible. We can. Uh, I'll try to help any way I can. Um, so Mark chapters 6 through 10, that's on the bottom of the back page. Any questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our Savior, thankful that He came to earth to die for our sins, to give His life so that He, though He was rich, became poor so that we, through our poverty, might become rich and help us to love Him more because of being reminded of that and help us to be glad um, proclaimers of that truth, of that gospel. There are thousands and millions more that need to hear and to need need to, to turn in repentance and faith. And Lord, you would receive such great glory from that. So use us to be your mouthpiece in Jesus' name. Amen.